0: When I started working in the field of human rights 25 years ago, um, I wasn't so much focused on national security, and in fact, the national security field, I don't, you know, it, it, was, it was not as robust as it is now. Um, and, uh, and the intersection between human rights and national security, not, not at all, uh, I think, pretty much nonexistent um, in, in terms of, certainly in terms of academia. When I was in law school, there really weren't, there wasn't a national security institute, there wasn't a human rights institute either. I mean, it was still uh, very embryonic. Um, And I worked in the field for a number of years before I was really focused on questions around the intersection of national security and human rights. So I wanted to, I'm not gonna lecture for all this time. I really, really want to invite you guys to let's have a conversation. But I will – I want to say a few words kind of in framing um, how I think about the intersection of these issues. I want to hear from you about how you think – why do you think there's a section on human rights in this National Security Law Institute? Um, And maybe touch on a few of the issues that – where I think um, these uh, two areas come together uh, and and then, really, I want to have a conversation uh, and, and encourage you to ask questions. Um, and I also want to encourage you to interrupt me if you have a thought or you want to um, – uh, about something I'm saying right now or you have a question about it. Uh, you don't have to wait until we say it's time to – but I, I wanted to start with a question for you just to get your brains thinking after lunch, which is, um, how do you think about these two concepts and how they interact? Um, are they – Competing values, uh, interests, you know, we've been hearing a lot from the current administration and particularly the Secretary of State about the intersection or not between values and interests. And I'm curious where, you know, how you think about these things coming into a a conversation like this. Are you surprised to have human rights and national security uh, together? Um, Do you see them as competing? What do you think? I'm just curious about where you're, where you're coming from. Yes,
1: uh, I'm from Israel. Um, when I was, uh, when I first came to Israel, and I was discussing the issue of human rights in America, if you're a human rights attorney, that's considered a wonderful position. And in Israel, a lot of the human rights kind of terminology somehow gets affiliated with a conflict. So when you say you're a human rights attorney in Israel, when I first got there then people immediately associated with with the the Palestinian side. But if you're in a national security kind of group, that would be a negative. And if you were in front of, like I would lecture in front of students, and they would think that if you're the government, then you're not like a human rights person. So then I started to kind of refine my speaking and I would actually introduce myself to, uh, to students and say, well, I'm a human rights attorney for the state of Israel, and I work in the field of national security. And the people just would look at me like I fell off like another climb The irony is that in the, in the NGO community, I think the NGO community has adopted the language of human rights, and, and I think that there's a role for advocacy in human rights and NGOs. But if you care about human rights, and the right to life and other important human rights, you want people that care about human rights to go into government. And national security is protecting the most basic of human rights and how to balance that human right with other human rights. So that's why I think it makes sense. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Good. Anybody else have a thought? Yes, right here. Um, Luke, I just noticed yeah, sir, that you all have um, your names. That's very I, helpful. I,
2: it, it's. I mean, I guess I should say I'm from, I'm, I'm from Canada, but in uh, I, Canadian Department of Justice. But I've, I've done a little bit of thinking about this in sort of a side academically. way. <laughs> I actually. Um, I've, I've, I gave a, a, a little presentation once where I was trying to make the argument that I thought that national security itself should be, could be reconceived as a kind of public human right, uh, in the sense that the state is um, that mechanism which provides for um, um, the conditions under which the self-realization of the members of the state are able to... Uh, Live their lives and it provides those particular conditions and when we enter into a public society um, there is in fact a, a right that we can demand and it's a public right because it's a sort of entering into it rises once we enter into civil society but we can demand of the state itself actually um, a, a, a kind of right to national security to be able to provide those conditions under which we're able to flourish and so i i, I think beyond the sort of traditional sense in which i think there is definitely an overlap in the traditional notions of public rights, I've actually tried to sort of suggest it can go a bit further and to develop a different kind of right, and instead of seeing them at odds with one another, to actually reconceptualize uh, national security itself as a new kind of public right, uh, public human right. And I know that's going a bit beyond how the traditional literature conceives of it, but it's sort of that's the way my thinking yeah. on it has actually gone, to try and bring the two sides together as opposed to putting them at odds with one another.
0: Well, in some ways, that's very retro, I have to say. And that, that was part of how I uh, wanted to start this uh, discussion this afternoon. Um, at Human Rights First, and most of us in the uh, working in, human, in the human rights field, um, take as our kind of first principles the universal declaration of human rights. Um, that's, that's kind of where... Uh, the rights are articulated but it's also you know people forget as, as you articulated Marlene about uh, you know how a lot of people today see human rights and national security as intention and diff- very you know ones from Mars ones from Venus and they really are often clashing um, and and I think that's a, a, a relatively modern phenomenon and you uh, um, and and very unhelpful, but I go back to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and if you read the preamble of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it is a national security, it's a a human security document. It is, um, I mean, the very first uh, words, whereas recognition of the inherent dignity of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. So, you know, and it goes on what happens when we disregard these things. What do we get? What we got in World War II, devastation, genocide, um, and we never want that again. And what's the key to never again for those things? It is respect for human rights. So, um, you know, most people focus on the individual – Uh, list articles of rights in the Universal Declaration but the preamble I think is really important because it sets this framework that these are concepts that are that are uh, completely foundationally linked security prosperity justice freedom with respect for individual rights Um, so at at its core I think the the concept of balancing is is not exactly right. We hear a lot of talk about balancing security and liberty, security and human rights, as if it's a zero-sum game, and you just have to find that right, delicate balance. And, of course, in one sense, there are going to be times where it feels like these things are in conflict. A lot has to do with the timeline that you're looking at in terms of uh, of security. Um, but it seems to me uh, that we are, as a society and society, uh, and the the world, constantly having to relearn that lesson um, that's really at the core of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that was, you know, came out of the crucible of of World War II, that respect for human rights is the pathway to security. Um, And where it seems like they're in conflict, we're probably not looking at the Uh, equation correctly. In fact, the other thing I, if I had my act together I would have given you all these documents but you all know how to get them and they're quite easily accessible. So read the Universal Declaration, uh, make sure you uh, focus on the preamble. And then the other thing that I would like you to take a look at are the last few national security strategies. So uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the national security strategies of the United States, these are documents that spell out the framework Priorities for national security for the United States that come out of the White House, and every few years, usually, Bill Clinton was very issued one practically every year. But um, President George W. Bush issued, I think, a couple during his uh, time in office. President Obama also, and and now the uh, national security staff um, at the White House is starting to work up the first national security strategy for the Trump administration, and. Um, you know just to I, I pulled just one of them just to give you a flavor. Um, this is from uh, the george w Bush administration, and the the letter that accompanies the national security strategy that the Bush administration put out in two thousand six starts like this: My fellow Americans, America is at war, and then there's a letter about that so America is at war um, and yet the uh, first substantive section, like point .1 uh, overview of the 2006 National Security Strategy starts like this. It is the policy of the United States to seek and support democratic movements and institutions in every nation and culture with the ultimate goal of ending tyranny in our world. In the world today, the fundamental character of regimes matters as much as the distribution of power among them. The goal of our statecraft is to help create a world of democratic, well-governed states that can meet the needs of their citizens and conduct themselves responsibly in the international system. This is the best way to provide enduring security for the American people." And it goes on to talk about, uh, like those who came before us, we must lay the foundations and build the institutions that our country needs to meet the challenges we face. I want to remind you, this is in 2006. The United States must, first bullet point among about ten, champion aspirations for human dignity. Um, so this concept of uh, grounding our national security in respect for human rights is n- neither new nor the province of any one political party, um, and nor is it uh, – you know, at least with practitioners of national security, I think, completely out of vogue. Bob, did you... just
3: a little trivia on the origins of the national security uh, reports. It was a brainchild of named Morris I. Liebman, uh, who was the chairman of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security for, I think, seven terms over about 15 years, Uh, worked very closely with John and me, and he pushed it for probably three or four years before the Reagan administration decided to start making them. It's a great idea. They don't do it all the time, but it really is It's good to get them to focus and tell the public what we're trying to do with our foreign policy.
0: Exactly. How, how many of you have ever uh, read the, uh, a national security strategy of the United States? Okay, so quite a lot of you. For those of you who haven't, um, it's useful to go back and, and look at them. They're not that long. And I actually do that periodically because it's a good reminder of, you know, uh, when everything hits the fan, you uh, uh, administrations often lose sight of what you know what they're trying to accomplish, and um, and that's when a lot of mistakes get made. Uh, I think it's useful to go back and look at these strategies as a, a, a way when as a reminder of what our goals are for national security um, and at least the strategies that we thought could produce those, those outcomes. Um, and going back through, as I said, through uh, multiple administrations and iterations of the national security strategy, you'll find that respect for human rights, um, the advancement of, of democracy and democratic ideals plays a central role in the vision for national security of this country. So I – yes, go ahead. No, no, no. I finish your thought and please. No, no, that's – yeah. So I, my point was just to, that, um, that it's uh, persistent throughout our uh, – at least the modern and certainly post-9-11 uh, era in the thinking about national security.
2: So I was just, I was just wondering, as, a, as an organization, when you're, when you're approaching these particular issues, um, do you as an organization think of human rights strictly – Um, as legally created? Or do you think of human rights as as kind of inalienable, in which case sometimes the legal frameworks are perhaps not telling the whole story or perhaps even interfering? So I'm just wondering, when you sort of go forward and tackle these things, obviously if you're standing talking to lawyers, you're gonna have to couch it in a particular way, but I'm just wondering, motivationally, um, do do you have a theory as an organization when it comes to human rights?
0: Yes, I think I mean I'm not sure how conscious we are of it, but if you look at how we Human Rights First talks about, even though we were founded as as a lawyers organization about 40 years ago, we were called the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights, and that's how we got started. That was back when the human rights movement was still pretty new in the in the 70s, and there wasn't a lot of human rights law. And a bunch of young lawyers actually got together and said, we think there's a, a particular role for lawyers to play in the development of human rights law and. And concepts of enforcement and all of that, but as the movement grew and 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 the laws and treaties got uh, got adopted, um, legal enforcement interpretation became kind of just one of many uh, strategies to advance human rights. But um, despite the fact that we're uh, our our DNA is uh, is from the legal uh, perspective, I would say that. You know we view these rights as as inherent to to by virtue of being human, as is described in the Universal Declaration, which is not a treaty and not a binding document, but there are treaties that flow from it that seek then to uh, you know to spell out the, the obligations of states. obviously, so much has changed since then the security environment but also the you know the growth of non state actors in the world um, that complicate all of this. But I don't think, I think the, the, the wisdom there in the Universal Declaration um, is still valid. Uh, and as we adapt to the new uh, circumstances, there are, plenty of, um, uh, there are plenty of examples around the world and here in the United States where uh, we believe people have rights that are not protected in law and, and need to be. Um, so that, that's a constant evolution. And uh, lawyers play a role in that, but uh, you know, ideally, uh, citizens come together and, and and demand that we have enforcement mechanisms for um, for protecting these rights. Um, so I wanted to just start as a baseline to say that I I, um, I particularly after 9/11, you heard a lot of uh, talk about balancing between security and rights, and um, and I think uh, that that's a, a, a kind of false dichotomy. Um, and I want to s- kind of start from the assertion that these things are mutually reinforcing and necessary for each other. Um, so now I just I just want to touch on a few um, of the issues where there appears to be a clash. Um, I also wanted to say, uh, as... Um, uh, Professor Graham said, uh, My organization, our mission is uh, perhaps a little different from some international human rights organizations that you might be familiar with. Um, we are an American organization and we, um, we identify as such. Uh, our tagline is American Ideals, Universal Values. Our mission is to foster American leadership on human rights. We come from a perspective that um, is not shared universally among human rights organizations globally, but it is that the United States uh, plays a unique leadership role in the world on uh, global human rights issues, for better or for worse, and our job is to make it for better. Um, so we are not of the school that says, you know, the United States is the source of the world's human rights problems, although for sure there are lots of uh, times and where uh, the U.S. is not leading the world to a higher ground, but sometimes off a cliff. Um, uh, But we do believe that there's no substitute for American leadership on these issues, and so we're really committed to trying to make that role a positive one. Um, So we look at global human rights problems through the lens of what is the role of the United States. Um, that is not at all to say that we think the U.S. ought to be acting alone on these issues. And most global, uh, not just human rights problems, but all the challenges that we face globally, um, a few of them, if any, can be solved by any one country. Um, uh, so we strongly encourage uh, the United States to be working um, with like-minded allies. But, um, but without our experience over nearly 40 years is that when the United States abdicates that role – the vacuum tends to get filled by bad actors um, who, who are not, who are rights-violating, uh, and that's a, a net negative that we want to prevent. Um, we obviously face a lot of challenges now with the current administration here in the United States, which um, is sending a very strong message globally that uh, human rights are not uh, going to be a central part of their uh, um, strategy on any of these issues. And that, you know, in bilateral relationships, human rights uh, may be seen as as kind of an impediment to uh, uh, U.S. interests. And so we're going to not bother our our allies with complaints about their human rights uh, um, performance. Um, That's uh, incredibly damaging, and we can talk about that in the, uh, you know, if you'd like. Um, We have obviously a lot of friends and allies who are working on human rights in very, very difficult. Circumstances in other countries, and uh, they are the risk to their safety and liberty has been um, abruptly increased uh, since the election um, because of some of these messages. So, we're very concerned about that. Um, one of the big issues that we work on that I wanted to put on the table, and uh, because it's not often talked about, well, it is often talked about as a national security issue, but not in the way that I think it ought to be, and that's the global refugee crisis. Um, Human Rights First spends a lot of time uh, focused on the protection of refugees. There is an international treaty um, that the U.S. helped to draft uh, and is a party to uh, that um, requires states to refrain from sending people back to places of, of persecution. Um, and. Uh, And that's where our domestic law that um, allows for the resettlement of refugees into the United States and the protection through the institution of asylum of people who are in the United States and fear return to their home countries. Um, My organization, in addition to doing all the policy work uh, that we do on, on this and other issues, um, because of our heritage as a legal organization, we operate one of the largest and, and probably most effective pro bono asylum representation programs in the country. So we represent, um, with this partnership with the private bar, um, thousands and thousands of refugees who are seeking asylum in the United States, who can't afford a lawyer. Um, we train uh, lawyers who are in, uh, you know, mostly corporate lawyers who are not immigration lawyers. We train them. And they volunteer their time to the tune of about $60 million worth of in-kind legal contributions a year um, to help indigent refugees navigate this very complex immigration system that we have in in our country. Um, So we do that as well as trying to advance uh, laws and policies that will treat refugees humanely. Now, the way that the refugee issue often gets discussed in the context of national security is... um, that the immigration system and the refugee resettlement or asylum system are um, risks to our national security in that people who wish to do us harm might come in through those avenues. That's often how it gets discussed. So we talk about building walls or putting people in detention or the you know the so-called travel ban, which also would um, would suspend and uh, the refugee resettlement program and all those kinds of. Uh, uh, proposals. Some of them proposals. Some of them are actually going on right now. That would impede the ability of of people fleeing persecution to actually find protection. Um, uh, but I, I want to propose, and I'm uh, and and uh, to you, and also expose you to the fact that a lot of people who are experts in, in national security and national security practitioners um, from both. Uh, the previous administrations, both previous administrations, um, um, have said that uh, the failure to uh, lead, for the United States to lead in protecting refugees during the worst refugee crisis that we've seen since uh, World War II, is itself uh, a threat to national security. Um, So the the failure to address the global refugee crisis in which there are um, uh, 5 million Syrians who've been dis- displaced or as refugees and even more that are internally displaced 2 million children um, uh, child refugees out of Syria and then you know uh, Syria is not the only refugee crisis, it's the one that gets the most attention but there are prolonged displacement and people who are in refugee camps for decades. The failure to deal with that pre- um, creates a Uh, threats to American national security that we tend not to focus on. Um, I mean, you just have to – this is another – here's in a nutshell, going back to what I said about the protection of human rights and its relationship to national security. Just think back to the beginning before the Syrian civil war uh, broke out. You had a group of of young teenagers in Syria who were spray-painting slogans on a wall inside Syria. Um, and the government responded uh, by detaining them and and torturing and killing one of those teenagers and that was the and, and at the time the United States was not at all focused on what did that have to do with us and our national security um, and from that, look where we are today, a refugee crisis that has had a profound impact on our most important ally Europe, um, and threat has threatened to uh, break up the European Union, the rise of authoritarianism in uh, in many countries in Europe, the rise of far right ethno nationalist parties, um, all of this now very much implicating uh, American national security. Um, but we keep forgetting that you know these that 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 the this. The United States certainly had a national security interest in ensuring that people have the right to protest, um, even children, um, to to seek a greater democracy in their countries. So, um, so the refugee crisis, that's an area where we're seeing, uh, from my perspective, a real abdication of American leadership, and it's not just this administration, it goes back to the previous administration. Um, and where we are pushing hard to make sure that people can understand exactly how refugees come to the country, what they bring uh, to our country, and how we manage whatever security risks there might be. John.
4: Yeah. I guess to go back to the question of Syria is, I mean, what were we going to do about it? Well, we could have gone to of war with Assad and kicked him out, I mean, but then we would have – we would be being called, oh, it's an aggressive war it violated the sovereignty of Syria. I mean, it's horrible – Decide government. I wasn't mean, no one's going to defend him, but at the same time, I don't really. Other than saying, "Well, he's a bad guy," I'm not really sure what we could have done to prevent what happened in Syria.
0: Well, of course, hindsight's always 2020, but um, I, you know, it's and it's having worked on issues of mass atrocity prevention for a long time. Uh, you know, it. Um, the longer human rights violations are left to fester, the harder it is to solve those problems. So, you know, you could look at the trajectory of the Syrian conflict, um, and I feel certain point to moments of opportunity where we could have done things differently earlier on. Once the house is on fire, it's, it's really, really hard, and the choices become all bad ones. It's it's all about picking the least worst option, and I don't at all profess to know. Um, And there's actually quite a lot of disagreement in the human rights community about, you know, so-called humanitarian intervention, um, whether or not you can ever – it's ever justified to uh, use military force to prevent uh, further uh, atrocities against civilians. There are a lot of uncertainties about that. There's international law that, um, you know, that appears to prohibit that in the UN Charter. Uh, So there are lots of tensions there for sure. Um, my point is is just that there uh, we, we, we tend not to focus on those things until, you know, it, I mean, take the refugee crisis, for example. It wasn't a crisis until refugees started showing up in Europe. <laughs> but it was a crisis for Jordan, Lebanon, and those places way before. So if we focus, my, my point is to focus earlier on the protection of individual rights because when those things are, you know, Back then, there was, there was not a war. I mean, there, there were protests in Syria, but they were you know, they were inspired by the Arab Spring, and they were part of that. And we, we really, as a country, I think, didn't recognize what security interests we might have in the development of democracy in that country. In some ways, though,
4: that just shows how, common, how complex things are, and that the flip side of that is the Arab Spring initially was thought of as being a good thing, in many ways it was, as governments were horrible. But careful what you wish for, If you create so much instability that yeah, I mean, as bad as Syria was before, under, before, when it was ruled by Assad, it's you even know, worse now. Uh, so it's stability. You know, said national security and human rights. Security and human rights are also kind of go together as well, and it's it's, it's extraordinarily difficult.
0: It, no, no question there. Absolutely, no question that it's not it's not simple. Um, or easy, uh, but I think that we tend to, um, and and also it's not it's not all on the United States to do these things. Uh, you know, we are not going to be able to dictate from outside how things turn out in Syria, um, or any any of the other countries where there are aspirations for democracy, um, and there are mixed motives among the people who want to advance democracy. Um, and we can't engineer that from outside uh, and um, but there are things that we can do as a country that make it more, uh, make it harder or easier for people who are trying to assert their own rights and advance their own uh, um, uh, advance democracy in their own countries and it's never going to be linear or uh, pretty um, I mean look at Egypt uh, but I would say right now we have a situation where um, you know, where we are the Egyptian people are worse off than they were before the coup that put Sisi uh, into power. Um, and the United States was very ambivalent about, uh, about that at best. Uh, and I guess what I would say is when in doubt, bet on uh, the protection of human rights and the ability of people to set their own destinies. Um, with respect to their their government, and um, and it's not always going to work out in the short term. In the you know what what seems to be the the, the outcome that the United States may want, um, but the alternative, throughout history, there are so many examples of where doing the alternative has led to horrible bloodshed and not uh, and and and. Uh, and regimes that are that end up not being friendly to the United States in any event, Jesse.
5: Um, as we all know, that human rights issue is really hard to detach from a, a democratic promotion, as you, as you mentioned briefly before. I'm just wondering that it's kind of really political scientific question. Uh, is there any differences between the like, parties in the United States that dealing with the human rights issues or like a democratic pr- promotion? Because I know that during Clinton administration in the 1990s, there is a huge like a surge of like a democratic promotion. So I'm wondering that this has been, like, not just that this, this administration, and just the previous one was just looking at the 50 years of, like, a mm-hmm. whole review of U.S. government policies, that is there a kind of, a, like, a correlation between the democratic promotion or human rights issue um, with a, that kind of party's, like, a tendency?
0: Yeah. yeah. It's a really, really good question. And it's a question that um, – and kind of a, d- a debate that has gone on for many years Between in in this country, between the so-called democracy promotion groups and human rights groups, who uh, in the 80s were kind of very much in conflict with each other. Um, But I think there's been quite a lot of convergence um, between uh, those different kind of factions over the last, I don't know, 10 years or so in that... um, the understanding of what's meant by the promotion of democracy is a, is much closer now to what we understand as core human rights principles, the elements of, of a democracy which involve a free press and you know freedom of assembly and a lot of the rights that are outlined in the Universal Declaration. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights doesn't say that you know you have to have a, a democracy in order to have human rights, um, but it is uh, but there's certainly a a pretty, an an overlapping Venn diagram, and um, I think the democracy promotion groups have realized over time that democracy is about a lot more than just elections, that you can have elections and not have democracy, you can have elections and not have respect for human rights. Um, There are multiple examples of that right now in the world. Um, So I I think that there, there are you know, there's a lot of overlap, but they don't mean precisely the same things. Did I see another hand up? Sorry, just wave if I'm missing you because it's a little hard to, to see all the way across. Um, anyway, I did. Well, I wanted to also point out, in addition to the impact of the failure to deal with the refugee crisis, um, the failure of the United States to deal with the refugee crisis, and the impact that that has had on Europe. Um, we also have an interest, obviously, in making sure that the the, the the countries surrounding Syria, who have really borne the primary brunt of of, of the uh, Syrian civil war in terms of absorbing refugees uh, – Lebanon, Turkey, Jordan, where I think a quarter of the population now is Syrian refugees – it's a tremendous burden on those countries, on the infrastructure uh, um, and budgets of those countries. We have – as I said, two million children, many of them uh, woefully undereducated, some who've been out of school for the, you know, six years of the of, of the war. Um, these are these all present um, uh, challenges to American national security. So failure to deal with those issues um, and to lead on them, I would say, is uh, inviting trouble on the national security front. And that is why so many national security leaders have been so critical of this administration but also the previous administration's failure really to step up and lead on the on the refugee crisis you have everybody from you know the uh uh, michael hayden who led the cia and and the nsa to michael chertoff who was head of um, uh, homeland security uh, to Madeline Albright, uh, uh, probably 15 or 20 on a letter that we put together that was uh, to um, help push back against a um, against a, a piece of legislation that would have shut down the resettlement program for Syrian uh, refugees. Um, it was a it was really a, uh, a very strong and very senior bipartisan mm-hmm. military and national security set of voices that said, you know, this is actually a na- the failure to bring in Syrian refugees and to address the Syrian refugee crisis is a national security problem for the United States. It's not the letting in of Syrian refugees. In fact, um, uh, refugees, Syrian and otherwise, are by far the most well-vetted of uh, foreigners who come to the United States, um, by far. Uh, and w- every system has flaws, but this it, – it, this is a system that is, you know, um, has multiple, multiple checks. Perhaps too many. It takes about 18 months to two years um, to to actually enter the United States as a resettled refugee from that region. Um, so there's a there's a, there's a lot of misinformation out there, uh, and the way the American public, at least, thinks about the uh, national security implications of the refugee crisis is really kind of the flip, I would say, of what it really is. Um, I wanted to touch on just a few let me check the time here we have till two forty five okay um, I'm just going to run through a few issues that are on our radar screen uh, that might be you know more traditionally thought of as the you know the intersection of, of uh, national security and human rights and say a couple words about those and then but please interrupt me as we go um, uh, so we can talk more in depth about them um, the first, of course, is the one that um that Dave mentioned that we worked on together so much, and that is uh the interrogation standards and the policy of torture that that our government here um, was uh pursuing after nine eleven um, and uh, that was one again where you know the the largely unsung heroes of that period were um uh, military officers and, uh, in particular, uh, members of the JAG Corps, who were speaking out internally to try to derail um, policies that they thought um, were uh, violating of the uh, violative of the Geneva Conventions and also were again undermining our national security, um, both by creating a narrative for the enemy to recruit, but also um, that we were there was there was great fear that we were actually. Um, losing, permanently losing, uh, access to intelligence, um, that we needed because we were engaging in torture. Um, so, and, and just a window for you into how a human rights organization, uh, deals with these issues. When it first started to come out that it appeared that, um, the United States was abusing prisoners in its custody, I, I admit that I was, high, I was very skeptical of it, actually, um, I didn't think that that was possible in a highly disciplined organization like the military. I I grew up in a military family. I just thought it didn't strike me as very plausible, one-off kind of things, maybe. But I didn't. I had trouble envisioning that there was a policy of torture. Um, uh, It turned out that I was wrong, but I, you know, I I thought it just wasn't very likely, and. but a lot there. A lot of us were very alarmed by those uh, and human rights organizations by those by by when those reports started to come out. This was even before the Abu Ghraib scandal broke. But, um, uh, and so we urged that that the government repudiate those unnamed sources and say that this is not really happening uh, because we thought that it couldn't possibly be happening. Um, but. Uh, you know, when it became clear that it was happening, and a lot of people in the human rights community were raising hell about it, we realized that it really wasn't having much of an impact. And that was largely because um, the American public, based on polling, you could tell that the vast majority of the American public, which had been told by the political leaders at the time that, that torture was necessary, uh, or enhanced interrogation, or whatever euphemism would, um, they used, was necessary to keep Americans safe, um, that, it was, that it worked, um, that we were getting important, life-saving intelligence through these programs, and that we needed to continue it. And um, most people, including me, uh, are, are not expert in interrogation. We don't know. We know what we see on TV. And actually, there was a, um, we actually did a project one summer with uh, uh, looking at the impact of popular culture um, on Americans' perception of torture. Before 9-11, um, there were, in the single digits, uh, number of instances of torture on um, primetime television, and it was always the bad guys, the enemies of the United States engaging in torture, um, and it never worked. After 9-11, there was an abrupt change, a huge increase, a spike to, in the hundreds of instances of torture being depicted on primetime television, And it was being done by Americans, um, usually against uh, people perceived to be Arab, brown people. um, And it always worked. Uh, And that's where most Americans were getting shows like 24 and um, copycat shows like that, Alias, where people were really getting fed a pretty steady diet of, you know, this is how you get information. And um, and so, uh, and so we asked ourselves, what do we know about this? We know that it's illegal. We think that it's wrong. But we actually don't know anything about whether it works. Um, we don't have any experience or background in that. So, so we pulled together a group of people who we thought might, um, professional interrogators, uh, senior military, retired military people. And we discovered um, that they were very concerned about the policy, and we ended up because they felt not only was it immoral and illegal, but they felt that it wasn't working. Yeah, Luke. Why did you, as an organization, care if it worked? So that, why that
2: did it even matter yeah. to you. It shouldn't. So
0: it's it a should good. Have to you. It's a very good question. It's the reason why I started telling the story was to get at that question, um, because it's highly unusual for a human rights organization. Based on the lofty principles in the Universal Declaration about the inherent dignity of all people, to even ask the question, you know, about the efficacy of torture, because if we found that torture was uh, uh, working, quote unquote, because there's also a lot to unpack in that uh, in that word, about what what does it mean to say that torture worked? Does it mean that it, it if you torture somebody, you can get a, a piece of true uh, information? I think yes, but. That sometimes happens. Um, But does it produce reliable information that you would want to risk American lives and treasure to pursue? No. Um, uh, But we ask that question primarily because we are a pragmatic organization that cares about changing the way things are in the world (laughs) and not about being on a side, uh, you know, or being on the side of the angels or being, you know, um, or just well, saying what's right um, once
2: you decided that torture was taking place did you have discussions and say "Well, what if what if the statistics came back and said oh it is working then, then, I mean, oh we would still
0: for sure be against it we would just be very less effective in changing the world okay. <laughs> so which is what we're about that's why we exist we don't exist to point out to people what's right and what's wrong we exist to make sure that the world is works a certain way and we wanted to stop we saw that as not just devastating to the people who were doing the torturing and the people who were being tortured, and ultimately the intelligence gathering enterprise. But um, going back to our mission, uh, which is to, you know, w- which which is based on the our view of the role that the United States plays in the world, it was devastating to the concept of American leadership um, to have the United States uh, be not just engaging in this, but defending it. Um, So we knew we had to change that. It became a very high priority for us. Um, So now we have a president who campaigned on bringing torture back. Um, uh, You know, we did through working with the retired generals and admirals group that we we formed together, and we continue to work with them. They actually were quite instrumental in, in brushing back um, President Trump, from his enthusiasm for torture in the early days of this administration, um, but you know there is certainly a risk because while I think we've won the battle in the um, in the Congress, where we've got uh, two p- pieces of legislation passed with strong bipartisan support um, to to reinforce the ban on torture and cruel and human and degrading treatment. Um, The polling indicates that we haven't won that argument with the American public completely. I don't think that we have a durable public consensus against torture. I think it's still quite vulnerable um, where we did have uh, some attack domestically or even, you know, uh, um, that it impacts U.S. interests, where where there might be an assertion that torture um, would help. So I worry a lot about that. Um, I think we're in a much better place than we were right after 9-11, um, where if you had asked me what were the biggest risks, I never would have thought that 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 the United States um, defending torture was was in the works. Um, Lisa,
3: yeah. can I just go
0: back to, yeah, Luke, yeah, please.
3: to what Luke was talking about? And One of the things that I've always enjoyed working with Human Rights First about is that it is a very pragmatic human rights organization. There are human rights organizations out there that are not pragmatic, they're not very objective in nature, and I think they lose a lot of credibility. One of the things that Human Rights First was looking for in terms of the enhanced interrogation techniques was, yes, we think it's unlawful, but the American people were being told it works. Wouldn't it be much more effective and much more pragmatic if we could not only say it's unlawful and it's wrong, but that it doesn't work? Because that's a much more effective argument. And so you combine those two aspects of it. It's unlawful and it's wrong. But by the way, it doesn't work either. I think that's one of the principal reasons that Elisa's organization put together that group (coughs) of military experts to say, no, it doesn't work. Because that generates a two prong Mm -hmm. argument as opposed to a one prong argument. Yes, Andrew. Just a question. You you may get to this in some of the other topics that you've talked about, but I think the
6: issue of efficacy is probably one of the more consequential things in this area that I, I think for the most part, as you had mentioned, one of the, uh, the most effective um, uh, arguments that you can make that would really have some sort of consequential effect to the public is the idea that it does not work. Um, however, there may come a time, and I think torture may be a, a less, um, uh, one of the less harder issues to deal with there, but there may be a time in where efficacy issues start to come in where there may be times where national security up against human rights issues in an extremely more effective way than had been done previously. And even with an issue like torture, I think that if you were to determine in some aspects that it was affected, I I wonder what type of an effect that would have on public perception of using it. Mm -hmm. I I don't really want to think about it because it may be somewhat concerning. Um, But you can think of much more complicated Um, Situations where we're engaged in certain activities and the efficacy rate is actually increasing. Um, And I was just wondering if you could speak to how you see that issue as being one to combat from a human rights perspective. Where there may be a time where uh, issues that you are trying to combat um, are working uh, at higher rates. Mm -hmm. And And you're giving credence to it. Yeah, so. Are you
0: employing
2: it? Yeah. It's
6: a danger.
7: Double-edged
0: Something I'm very, as you can imagine, that we grappled with quite a lot. Um, and, and in fact, you know, uh, Dave, you're very kind to speak in glowing tone, tones about our being pragmatic, and I think it led to a, 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 a really effective outcome in the torture area, but we really did struggle with it, and, in fact, there are many other organizations who think it was, uh, you know, dangerous to open the door to talking about e- efficacy. Um my argument to them was that the door is already wide open, that, that that is what the debate is about. And the degree to which we refuse to engage around that issue at all, or even just to educate ourselves privately about whether that is a valid argument, um, pretty much takes us out of the realm of, of really being able to cause change. Um, and you know, even in the torture area, which now seems sort of extreme and black and white, it's not so much, because it really does depend, as I implied earlier, on how you define what works. This is true, not, you know, not just in the national security area on human rights, but in lots of, lots of issues around um, the – in our bilateral uh, relationships with different countries. If you just take what's going on right now with, with Saudi Arabia and we think about, you know, what we're doing with the arms deal with Saudi Arabia and whether that's going to serve – ultimately American interests. You know, a lot depends on how you define what your outcome is, what is your goal. Uh, with torture, for example, if you define your outcome as I'm going to squeeze this guy and he's going to, you know, tell me um, uh, where the safe house is, you know, this is a lesson I learned from an interrogator friend of mine, you know, uh, <coughs> coercion can can produce the address of that safe house. Um but it's not likely to produce the information that the house is booby-trapped and all of your guys that you're going to send there are going to get killed when they go there. That requires a different strategy. So in that sense, did torture work or not? <laughs> um, similarly, you know, there are other like, – take the drone uh, question, for example, which is another area where there seems to be, you know, a, a real conflict between human rights and national security. And again, where human rights first tends to take a little bit of a different view than some other organizations in our space. In that, um, and and uh, this tees up a little bit what you're going to talk about this afternoon. Uh, you know, for from our perspective, you know, we think about targeted killing. Um, what is targeted killing? Uh, is targeted killing lawful? Um, you know, is it good? Is it bad? Does it violate human rights? Well. It's better than the alternative, right? So if you're if you're a human rights proponent, you want targeted killing in wartime, right? Not indiscriminate killing. That's bad. So any device that will enable you to better target the bad guys, your combatants in a war, especially things like drones that may keep your own people out of harm's way more, that seems like that could be a really positive thing. <laughs> Yes. I mean, you're making
2: a utilitarian argument at this point. I mean, the exact same argument could be made for torture. And, you know, the ticking time bomb scenario, you say, well... We've got all these lives, and wouldn't it be much better if, you know, we just tortured this person for ten minutes to find the information to save the city from the bomb going off? So as soon as you start using arguments that are like, well, this is going to be a little better because less people are going to suffer, you've fallen into a utilitarian argument, and that's just going to lead down to... No, I mean, Look, we'll that,
3: Luke, Luke, that's, assuming, that's assuming that the targeting itself is unlawful. Right, and I I can see what I'm just The that the targeting is... Is lawful, and this is a point I always make. Right. Of course, you want targeted killings because you don't want indiscriminate right. killings. Right, and, that, and that's but a different. I said the use side bellum and the use in Bellow are lawful in and of themselves. Something I agree. That's
4: an entirely different question. Lawful. Oh, I good. Look at all this. Okay. So
3: there
4: is a, there is at some point, and in some sense, there is some utilitarianism involved because the people that die as a result of terrorism, their lives matter too. You know, one of the reasons why I think that there's a lot of hostility towards human rights organizations is sure. they only speak for the people who were trying to kill us. You know, never once like I'd love to hear you. I'd love to hear Amnesty International come up and say about people that were run over on the bridge in, in, in London and say they're human rights were violated. And I'm not saying that that justifies everything, but the point is, is that at some level there is a bit of the utilitarianism. Sure. And if you don't say there's a utilitarianism, then the victims of then the victims
2: of aggression then their lives don't matter. Sure. I'm just saying I'm very skeptical of arguments that start to go, well, if we do this, it's going to be good because it's going to minimize... I mean, it's it's a dangerous... Yeah, so It is it. dangerous,
0: but life is dangerous and
2: hard. Well. I mean, you can't make... It.
0: <laughs> a couple of points, and then I would like to hear from Aaron. Uh, one is that um, uh, the reason I raised the drone question is that, again, the as is often the case, I think the debate that we tend to have is about is a symptom of some bro- uh, underlying problem that we haven't dealt with. So with drones for example, I think it is the complete failure of our democracy, particularly two branches of it to deal with the question of the scope and duration and objectives of the armed conflict in which we're engaged. And because there that that this is kind of a mutually reinforcing bad situation here because uh, drone strikes do make it easier politically in some ways to, to engage in armed conflict because we, there's less of an impact on our people. Uh, and so it may warp warp in a way the calculus that we need to make as a democracy about whether or not we're at war and where we're at war. And right now we have a, a what I think is a, a serious, serious problem for our democracy in that we have been at war for a, many years now, the longest ever. And Americans don't understand. Members of Congress don't understand. Members of the administration, repeated, you know, successive administrations cannot say uh, who we're at war with, where we're at war. All Are you of these questions. AUMF? I'm teeing it up right for you, right? Uh, so this is a this this is a serious problem, and I think it throws off all kinds of human rights. Uh, problems um, and so we taught instead we di- we we fight about drones and y- there are some things to fight about with respect to drones there's a lack of transparency there's uh, you know this administration seems to be changing the rules about uh, um, uh, collecting information and disseminating information about civilian casualties as we all know the laws of war the reason why, one of the reasons why war is such a terrible, terrible thing is that it's lawful during wartime to do all kinds of things that are crimes during uh, peacetime, including kill civilians, including on purpose um, in certain circumstances. So that's a terrible thing. And for that reason, we have to have lines around what we, you know, even if it's hard, and it's way harder now than it used to be when it was state versus state. But the fact that it's hard, I think, doesn't mean that we can't find a way to at least say for ourselves, this is how we understand it. Um, And it's really, really important for – you know, from my perspective, as somebody who's looking globally at the rules of the road that the U.S. is setting by its own conduct for other countries who are – some of which are not going to grapple, as we have, with those kinds of questions. So I think it's really that's one of the key human rights problems that we have right now is we have a, a kind of a persistent and, and poorly defined armed conflict when you have a set of rules that you know uh, permits all kinds of what would otherwise be you know very serious human rights violations so that's a big problem um, and uh, I wanted to say another word about this utilitarian argument and your comment about Amnesty International. Um, Yes, and it, was there another one in addition to you? Okay, you're next after, after this point. Before I forget, which is that um, human rights groups, it's not you know it's not without some justification, but they tend to get caricatured as being, you know, anti-security or only focusing on you know defendants and perpetrators. And I want to caution you against that characterization um, because uh, you know I know from. Uh, from many years of working with these organizations, and we don't always get it right, and uh, it's one of the reasons why my own organization does not tend to do so much calling of balls and strikes in war zones because I think it's very difficult to get that right when you're not there. Um, but, um, but my experience has been that, uh, that most responsible human rights organizations, including Human Rights Watch and Amnesty and others, um, uh, very much do uh, condemn... Terrorist activity as violative of human rights. It's challenging for us because the human rights system was set up to address state violations, and so you have all these non-state actors now that are perpetrating horrific violence and human rights viol- the violation of the most fundamental right to life. Um, but uh, but most organizations have crossed that line a long time ago and are more uh, you know uh, more and more taking the time to you know uh to speak out against, against those violations. We have far less ability to influence oh, and change than we do with and so we have limited resources, so we're focusing on so it
4: increases their credibility and perception is reality. I mean, in fact if people perceive that you're figured out that, that way then it has yeah, to it's the a
0: very to I, and my my point is that it's a very difficult narrative to disrupt because it's quite firm. Aaron, you had something you wanted to say. Am I saying I'm your name sure right? I'm
8: not sure if I actually remember the first question I had. Um, uh, th- well, on, on, on the drones, I mean, it strikes me. I mean, right now the timing couldn't probably be worse for a reevaluation of whether the underlying presupposition in the, you know, battle with these non-state actors is actually a legitimate armed conflict, but it is something that, you know, as a Canadian. Um, for us we tend to be pretty picky about it it's got to be an armed conflict for um, low act to apply and if it's not an armed conflict then it's international human rights law and in international human rights law you've got a right to life and so drones as convenient as they may be um, really aren't on the table because you can't just take somebody out in whatever jurisdiction it is but um, so I find, it in, I find it interesting that, um, uh, you know, we don't see a lot of that anymore. Is it because there's a sense that the battle on whether it, you can actually really call what is going on with Al-Qaeda, an um, armed conflict, was lost so long ago that it just sort of is, that narrative has just rolled on and there's no point really coming back to it. And I'll be very happy to see what happens um, today because... You know, um, ISIS. I don't think was around in two (laughs) thousand and one when that first um, uh, authorization was issued. But my second question, and this is this is the the one I was thinking before, in um, when you mentioned the bilateral relations and the uh, need for pragmatism and 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 the torture. I mean, how do you deal with? You know, you have any number of players that a government has to rely on for information, for cooperation. Um, You know, we've seen our our own country um, disengaged rather massively from both Syria and um, Iran in 2012. Um, The commitment of the new government is to re-engage, certainly with Iran, not to re-engage at this point with Syria, but, you know, Part of the narrative at that time was these were massive human rights offenders and um, state sponsors of terrorism, and we were not going to engage with state sponsors of terrorism and these human rights abuses. But then you have no, you have no voice, you have no in, you have no ability to influence. Um, but yet, you know, when Canada's talking to Saudi Arabia, um, there's some pretty. Like massive criticism that comes from maintaining relationships with these countries who we know are doing things that are are, mm-hmm. are are quite horrific. So, how do you? What would you? How would you advise a government on how to manage this? I mean, because you you have to deal with the ugly sisters in the room. Um, you, there's no way out of dealing with them. But how do you deal with them in a way that doesn't compromise your commitment to? Human rights, or or or
0: be perceived as yeah. compromise on those human rights. Yeah, it's a really important question, and it it, it dominates our our thinking about our strategy uh, daily, yeah. um, particularly with this administration. Because I don't think you know. I mean, we have a president now who's said broadly to everybody <laughs> concerned, we're not going to lecture other countries about values, um, which you know is very much understood to be code word for, you know, all those uncomfortable conversations that you used to have with the United States. Don't worry, we're not going to have any of those with you anymore. Um, And now, I mean, I I think, again, uh, there's often a straw man argument that's put forward by um, people who are annoyed with human rights groups, which says, you know, you're saying we can't engage with these countries? I mean, we, there, you know, we, we've, there are a lot of countries that engage. In, look, President Trump has said, we're no different from Russia. We kill people too. You know, we're not, what's the big deal? We're, you think we're so innocent? We're not going to cast stones. We do bad things. You do bad things. It's all about interests and not about values. Um, and uh, you know, we're dealing with the consequences of that in people 's lives now, where the you know whatever kind of I mean as a human rights organization, we often ask ourselves, are we making a difference? Um, does what we do matter, uh, particularly because an organization is focused on uh, being pragmatic and really that involves a lot of compromise, a lot of you know getting half a loaf if that um, and You know one of the grim silver linings of the current situation. If you take what you know, the message that the U.S. government recently delivered on this, including to Bahrain, um, you know, within days of being told, you know, how awkward things were with the U.S. government and you guys, don't worry about that anymore. We're not going to have those conversations. We're with you. Within days. There was a crackdown on a peaceful protest, five people were killed, and one of our friends was arrested and tortured and sexually assaulted, a human rights activist. You know, I think there is a direct relationship between those things. That said, I don't think that anybody really, with possible exception of, you know, maybe with respect to North Korea, but even there, we're not saying don't engage, that you can't have conversations, that you can't have a discussion, that you can't find shared interests to try to work together on. But engagement has to be for a purpose and with a goal. And, you know, I mean, all administrations have t- have had relationships with unsavory governments. Uh, all, all U.S. administrations have had some form of relationship and conversation and you know, with with governments that have terrible human rights records, and I accept that as a a, a fact of 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 uh, international relations, but it is uncharted territory where we are right now, where we have uh, an administration that doesn't even pretend that these universal values. These are not quirky little things that the United States just happens to think. You know, you have your you know. Uh, uh, views and we have ours kind of thing and we'll just agree to disagree these are fundamental universally shared if not by governments by by peoples um, uh, beliefs in, in uh, human dignity and the inherent rights of people who are members of the human family just by virtue of their existence and we you know we all of a sudden don't have that anymore uh, with this administration and it's, it's wreaking havoc and uh, on in all kinds of ways, <laughs> in how our allies view us, and just think about what that means for American security. Um, you know, this idea that we're everything's going to be based on on interests um, and not shared values. That we're going to you know be America first. There was a piece written recently by um, National Security Advisor uh, McMaster that said you know America first doesn't have to mean America alone, or doesn't mean America alone. But it is starting to be America alone, um, because of that. You look at what's what's happened with uh, you know after the visit to Europe. So, and then just to bring it back to the national security issue, and particularly with respect to the fight against uh, our terrorist enemies, you know the the idea that we can. I mean, as I said at the beginning, most of these. Uh, human rights challenges but most of the global problems whether it's climate or terrorism and all kinds of challenges that we face in the world um, have to be solved uh, together you know with with a, co- uh, a coalition at least um, and so while the argument that's being made by the, this administration is that these you know pesky human rights problems and uncomfortable conversations are getting in the way of cooperation around terrorism I think what we're seeing right now is a policy that is not only anti-human rights, but that is fomenting terrorism. And that goes back to my initial point about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the relationship, the centrality of respect for human rights, to security. Um, Jesse first.:
5: um, When yesterday, lecture by Rob Chesney talked about the why we put criminals in, in, a, in a jail? If we talk about deterrence as a one of the function, why you have to put the criminals in jail? And then just thinking about the difference by punishment, that it just came to my mind is that, um, how do you think about uh, torture, not in terms of like a human rights issue, but as a punishment? So if put other words like that, if, uh, if we cannot do torture to the people that we think that we have, we have some right to get some information, but what kind of policy alternatives you can suggest to people that as a punishment function? How can we punish these kind of people?
0: Uh- you mean? Are you asking about what is the uh, the lawful punishment yeah. for um, uh, for people who commit terrorist acts? That kind of thing? Yeah. Um, well, certainly not torture. Uh, I think that's illegitimate uh, and unlawful. It's un- it's 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 not a. <laughs> You're going to come away thinking that I- no, was, no, no, no. the human rights movement <laughs> is worry, utterly corrupted. I'm um, <laughs> good with that one. Um, uh, but you know, in the United States, there is a growing, finally, a growing debate about um, issues uh, around um, incarceration—not just the the um, racial injustice that's in our criminal justice system, but also the, uh, in particular, the use of um, solitary confinement as a form of torture. And We have um, rampant use of solitary confinement, really, frankly, quite unregulated use of solitary confinement in our um, uh, in, our, in our criminal justice system here in the United States, uh, and that I think there's no question that that's, at least in many instances, a form of torture. Um, so I think that's, that's another thing that I would say is put out, out of bounds. But, you know, I'm, I'm certainly, I don't mean to imply that I don't think that, you know, um, people who commit acts of terrorism ought, ought to be, you know, let free. We have a criminal justice system. There are ample um, you know, ways to, to prosecute people. In fact, it, there was one other issue that I want to raise that this is a good segue into, and that is the um, detention of people at Guantanamo and the use of military commissions. This is another issue that we've spent tons of time on. Um, and uh, and it, it does actually still kind of keep me awake at night, the, the trajectory that we are on right now with the co-conspirators that um, you know all these years later still have not been brought to justice and are at at Guantanamo, and Human Rights First has advocated for many many years um, that those cases belonged in um, in the regular federal court system, and that if they had been there, it would be highly likely that the co-conspirators Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the others. Um, would not be cause celebs because we're violating their (coughs) rights but would be consigned to the dustbin of history and no one would even remember their names they'd been prosecuted and um, convicted in federal court they would as hundreds of other um, terrorists, convicted terrorists uh, have been um, you know they're serving life sentences in secure federal facilities in the United States and nobody knows their names which is just fine with me instead, we're in a situation where we're not sure whether there'll ever be convictions that will hold up in court because this makeshift military commissions, as much as the people who are involved in them are trying valiantly to make them work and there are a lot there's a lot of goodwill uh, involved there um, They are just I think fatally flawed and not going to produce anything uh, well, that we can stand be behind I'm sorry
4: what about the?
0: Well, I mean it's it it's kind of speaks for itself right now if you look at why we have oh well, I mean, Steve crazy. Steve has what, many feelings. What, so. I mean, what about yeah. them? is it a due process problem, is it a jurisdictional problem, is it an
4: admissibility of evidence problem? Yes. What about
0: <laughs> Well, I mean <laughs> it, it's awesome. it's, it's been it's been different problems along the way. There's been a lot of attempts to try to you know actually they're they're closer now, you know, with all of the changes that have been made over the years, they're closer now to uh, the regular court, mar- but they're still not there, the regular court-martial system. But the biggest flaw, I think, is that, you know, and it was, I don't think it was malicious in the people who were setting it up, but, you know, the uh, we've seen with the, you know, many of the cases that have gone through the military commission system have been over. the convictions have been overturned because of various uh, uh, jurisdictional problems and questions about whether the acts being charged were actually um, war crimes, which is the jurisdiction, which needs to be the jurisdiction of the military commission. No, as I
3: indicated before, we're going to have a, a session on military commissions. Oh, good. And I think uh, the former chief prosecutor can probably respond to those questions. But having been there at the creation, they're much better than they were. When they were first created, they had tremendous flaws, both from a criminal law and from an international law perspective. And all those flaws were pointed out to the administration. Much better now, but I, I think ultimately, the the stigma on the entire process is so great that it's an uphill battle to restore any credibility with respect to military commissions right now. I think that's the biggest problem. As, as Elisa says, there are people of goodwill. There's nobody smarter than the chief prosecutor right now, Brigadier General Mark Martins. I mean. He's worked for me. The guy is is a brilliant guy. He's He works 18 hours a day, but he's got an amount to overcome just in terms of the perception of the military commission process. And Steve, Steve's raising his hand. Can we take some of your time? Yeah, please. Steve, I just want to add a couple of facts
9: just to just tell them. Those are know. good. So, uh, <laughs> there, have been, there have been eight convictions by the military commissions in 15 years. Four of those already have been overturned on appeal. Two more have appeals pending. Right, and one of the two is not appealable because the guy has absconded and doesn't want to actually fight his case. Um, there are three proceedings currently pending. Two of them raise comparable jurisdictional questions uh, about whether a US military commission can try a domestic as opposed to an international war crime. And perhaps most importantly, there is now pending in the US Supreme Court a certain petition asking the Supreme Court to actually settle one way or the other whether the military commissions can try non-international war crimes if the Supreme Court takes that case and says no, that will invalidate most of the work of the military commission to date. If they take that case and say yes, I think that will go a long way toward legitimizing maybe not everything since 2001, right? but at least the forward-looking aspects of the commission. So I think part of the problem is not that it's clear that they're illegitimate, but that we've been spending 15 years lurking under the shadow, um, and the Supreme Court really has not yet seen fit to resolve it. They finally have a chance. So Part of my plea for the Supreme Court to take Albalul versus the United States, number 16 1307.
0: Matt, Marlene, Aaron, and Kalia.
7: I'm going to change topics here if that's OK. Sure. So, Minda, I'm just interested in your thoughts on the intersection of human rights law and uh, our, the Hague regulations and actual uh, militaries using force uh, on the ground.
0: I'm sorry, on what?
7: Well, like, you said Bellow rules. um, Because we hear that, I mean, some of the literature says they're mutually reinforcing. And I have no idea what that means. And having worked in a coalition environment with many nations that have different views on it, um, it was anything but mutually reinforcing when there's a human rights debate going on in the background about what kind of, what flag jet is going to, are we going to use to drop bombs? Because they have certain restrictions that are not law of war restrictions, they are human rights restrictions. Um, and it's, my view is that it adds uh, a lot of confusion and it makes what is otherwise recognized clear rules of the law of war murky, which I think can result in uh, war deaths and of conflicts, but I understand from a from a policy point of view, if, you know, human rights is and obviously it's a good thing. I don't think anyone is or, or anti human rights, but where it where it bucks up against um, actual conflict and sustained conflict, where do you think that interaction is, and, and is, is there a is there friction there that or, or, or not? I'm just Wrong. <laughs> I'm asking that genuinely. Yeah. Because uh, I know a few personal experiences does not, you know, that's not representative of what's actually happening. But it's what I have to go
1: on.
0: Yeah. So there's probably a whole class you can have just on that. And I'm very reluctant to address it when I have people in the room who know it so much better than I do. But touched on that to a certain But I, I can. I let me just say one thing about that, which is um, that. Uh, you know, I think those uh, conflicts that you've uh, that you've seen up close um, uh, are exacerbated, if not completely created, by a lack of clarity around um, what you know operate and, and a lack of agreement among allies about these fundamental questions of the scope and. Of the, of the armed conflict that we're engaged in. I'm, I, I, I think it's quite clear we're engaged in armed conflict. I don't uh, at all dispute that. And I think that, as I said, the laws of war permit all kinds of things in armed conflict that are um, prohibited under regular order, including human rights law. I don't think that the laws of armed conflict answer all of our questions that come up, mm-hmm. and, and specifically around detention and trial. And so I think those, as the ICRC has grappled with some of that, and, you know, I think there are ways in which, you know, the principles at least of human rights, we we kind of, as situations, you know, uh, get more complex, sometimes we have to navigate those. It's not black and white, and it's not, um, the lines aren't always clear. But I think the fact that there are going to be some gray areas doesn't mean that the rules As a whole don't apply and and that's one of the challenges that i that i perceive a lot in dealing with operators over the last you know 15 years is that you know there are there's a a a kind of frustration with the legal framework because it doesn't answer all of our questions and it's not that surprising that it doesn't answer all of our questions because we've got you know each situation is unique and we have to you know, figure out how to apply it and that's what lawyers do as best we can. But, um,
3: Lisa, if I can take 30 <laughs> seconds. I, I think Matt, just as a thumbnail, with respect to conventional armed conflict, Article 2 armed conflict, I think the United States' position is that the law of armed conflict is a lex specialis. I think the United States is willing to talk about it when it comes to Article 3, non-international armed conflicts. <clears throat> Traditional big day common article three internal armed conflicts. I think the United States is willing to take the position that there may well be a place for international human rights law in those conflicts because after all, those governments have signed up to various human rights conventions. It's in the area where we go beyond the conventional non-international armed conflict to this global non-international armed conflict and all the detainee and trial issues that we have here that everybody is confused with respect to exactly what law applies. We have an avalgam now of a little bit of law of armed conflict, a little bit of human rights law, and nobody is quite clear at this point. But that's driven by the fact that nobody is quite clear about what a global non-international armed conflict is. Okay, that was a bit more than 30 seconds.
0: No, yeah, but it, it's a, it's actually a, a theme of what I have been saying uh, about the, you know, we, we we are tending to fight about symptoms and not, uh, you know, that that's where we that's where the conflict seems real, but almost always I'm finding that th- those things are a result of not having dealt with some underlying major question that's politically hard to deal with. Um, I wanted to hear from Kalia. Is that? Am I saying that right? Yes. Oh, my question was back to Guantanamo. I know that the
5: human uh, that your organization has a how to please Guantanamo blueprint. So I was just wondering how does the new administration affect your strategy?
1: <laughs>
0: A, a lot that so we <laughs> we we originally did that blueprint actually in 2008 um, for the incoming administration. It was uh, based on you know, and it was a very if you want to look at the the first iteration of that. It was actually the Obama administration came in. We met with President Obama during the campaign. Uh, This group of retired generals and admirals met in private with uh, all the presidential candidates and talked about torture in Guantanamo and the importance of closing. and It's hard to people forget that that closing Guantanamo was a you know there was wide bipartisan agreement that Guantanamo should be closed. President Bush wanted to close it. Candidate McCain wanted to close it. Colin Powell said I would have done it yesterday. You know everybody was kind of competing for how fast they would close it. but nobody really had a plan for how to do it and how we would balance these hard questions. And so uh, so we tried to spell that out in very, you know, you have to first figure out who's there and what information do we have from all, it was scattered amongst all the different agencies and how to pull all that together and make judgments about who was tribal and who was not and all of that. And the um, Obama administration in its first term actually started going through those steps and doing them and ran into a brick wall when, um, right after it announced what we suggested it ought to do, which was to bring the nine eleven conspirators to trial in federal court. They announced they were going to do that in uh, in in Manhattan, and you know all hell broke loose politically and they 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 kind of backed away from that. That was one real turning point um, this this administration is led by a, a president who as as um, as a candidate, said he was going to load Guantanamo back up with some really bad dudes. I think is what he said. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think you know we, we are advising that that's not a very good strategy. If they, if the United States, I mean, just based on what's happened so far, I mean, Guantanamo has proven to be a trap, not just for the people who were in jail there, but for us as a country. You know, we people get it's like a you know one way trap, and you get in, you can't get out unless you're lucky enough to get convicted. <laughs> then you can get out. Uh, but and so um, you know we've, we've done a lot of work with federal prosecutors. We put out several reports one, including in pursuit of justice and where we go through how the federal courts are uh, well equipped to deal with all of the challenging aspects of terrorism prosecutions, including Miranda warnings and all these kinds of things that where you know people have asserted that the federal courts are not well uh, suited to deal with these cases when in fact um, they have successfully dealt with hundreds and hundreds of uh, terrorism cases of varying complexity. Um, it's, it's maybe odd, again, to find a human rights organization saying, you know, uh, touting the numbers of prosecutions, successful prosecutions, and we certainly have some problems with some of those prosecutions and how they were handled. Um, but as a whole, we view that system as kind of a self-correcting kind of system and a way more experienced system at dealing with classified information and um, the complexities that terrorist, uh, terrorism prosecutions raise. So, um, you know, I think Guantanamo was, you know, there were some who, in the initial setting up of Guantanamo, who basically said, let's go someplace where the law doesn't apply. That's long, you know, we're way past that, obviously. Steve was just talking about the cases in the Supreme Court and multiple Supreme Court cases had made clear that, you know, the law applies. Um, and our obligations apply there. Um, so the, 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 uh, if you combine all the downsides of Guantanamo, it's, I think, pretty pretty clear that's a losing proposition. Wouldn't it be great if one of the successes of the Trump administration was finally concluding some of these cases um, and, and bringing those people to justice? That would be an amazing accomplishment, and I don't think that's going to happen in the military commissions. Um, yes, I have Marlene, I have Aaron. in the last question. Oh, sorry.
1: OK, well, one sorry. One of the things I remember when I first heard someone the human rights first yeah. speaking at a conference that I was like, I really saw the difference of the advocacy of your organization as opposed to other human rights organizations. And I, I think frustrating, and I'm also back to help from our perspective. I think what's been very frustrating that there's a lot of gray in this area. What's right? What's wrong? And governments are acting in good faith to find solutions to complex problems on a whole range of issues, including one time a similar issue as the law itself is developing and not clear. And I think one of the questions I have for you as an advocate in this space, is what can be done to to encourage human rights organizations when things are unclear to say so? Because what we see a lot is we will see the different press releases from different human rights organizations taking positions of the laws of armed conflict that are just not accurate. They're not accurate in a matter of interpretation of the laws of armed conflict. They issue statements in the middle of a military operation. Like everyone should cease, you know, and desist from arms when you have missiles coming into your country. So there's a level of impracticality in the advocacy um, in this space, which I think is not helpful to governments. And I want to know if you saw, or to the development of law. In a way, you know, Professor Newman was explaining yesterday, you want to protect the development of the law in an appropriate way. Do you have any suggestions from your work in the field? I would encourage that type of advocacy. In your
0: yeah, I do, and I think that's a great last question. You know, I think that... Uh, Human rights organizations. Obviously, there are a lot of different, a lot of different organizations. They have different organizational uh, um, priorities and experiences and kind of personalities, if you will. Um, but I think that, in general, uh, you know, government engagement with human rights organizations um, tends to produce better dialogue and better results. Um, you know there's a if you're if if ngos are operating in an environment where they are demonized by the government or where there's a lack of transparency and they're left on the outside to try to kind of read the tea leaves and try to figure out what what the rules are i mean this is an experience we had here around the drone policies you know we were kind of being told don't worry you know we've got really clear guidelines and but we can't tell you what they are and you know, we're just looking at, you know, who ends up dead, and trying to divide (laughs) backward from that what the rules for targeting are or something. And when we finally got in closer conversation with the government about what they're trying to do, they obviously, there are certain things they can't discuss with with outsiders, but when there is more of a development of, of kind of trust back and forth, including with individual people, I think that's really important. Um, and a a, a commitment to transparency as much as that is possible Um, and also a commitment to accountability for when things don't go as they are supposed to go. That creates an environment where you can have a lot more of a a kind of sense of shared objective. Um, And I think we've gotten away from that a lot uh, in... uh, Certainly in this country, and, and maybe it's true in Israel as well. I'm not as familiar, but um, but I think that is uh, kind of the foundation for building a, a more constructive dialogue between government and non-government entities. Um, and I think so. I think you know trust, transparency, and you know, governments not always seeing. Uh, you know, it's a two-way street. <laughs> and so i think governments also have to see human rights organizations as you know serious professional people who may have information that could be useful to the government and perspectives that can be useful to the government i know that's been my experience here when i've developed relationships of of trust with uh senior people in in the government um, you know in successive administrations democratic and republican and, and that has made for, I think, ultimately better policy. So that, that, I think that's the environment in which we all want to operate and in which you know, we have a better chance of really getting back to the beginning, kind of unifying this sense that, that human rights is, is not in conflict with national security but actually is the foundation of, of security. So thanks. That was really a good discussion. Thank you all for engaging so much i <laughs>